Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Here's how Matt Torney, the artistic director of Theatrical Outfit, describes their new production of Half-Life. It tells the story of four decades in the relationship between two women charting their path through courtship, marriage, parenthood, and beyond. But what really stands out is that the play is structured like the half-life of an atom, with scenes existing out of the linear sequence of time and each exploring a different collision between these two beautiful souls. It just shows us how much love is love, and that's it, period. Later this hour, we'll talk with the director of Half-Life, Melissa Folger, and the actor Park Krausen. First, the first time I saw Atlanta native Dulce Sloan was six years ago when she opened for T.J. Miller at the Atlanta Improv. She was amazing, hilarious, clever, irreverent, Not long after that appearance, Dulce auditioned for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and two hours later, she was invited to become a correspondent for the show, where she's been since 2017. That was when we last spoke, and I am excited to talk with her now, ahead of her appearance Saturday at City Winery. Dulce Sloan, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having me. The name of your comedy tour is very funny, but not one we can say on air. (laughs) Yes, can you explain? Blame the meaning so listeners get the gist. Basically, the no, the name of my tour is No Broke um, Man Parts in the colloquial <laughs> way to say it. And so starts with a D, you get it. So I was co-hosting with Don Lemon for New Year's Eve on CNN. And he asked me what my New Year's resolution was. And I told him basically... I did not want to have relations with a man who had no money is what the gist of (laughs) my 
New Year's resolution was and followers um, online and my friends have been trying to keep me accountable with this. Yes. So I said it and it went viral, which I didn't expect because I just said some silly thing and everyone seemed to love it. And one of my friends, Lace Larrabee, who will be at the show on Saturday. Yeah. She said, she's like, this has to be the name of your tour. You have to have t-shirts and all of this. So I'll have t-shirts there. My mom is making masks and tote bags. So she's still in Atlanta. So it was just a silly thing that I said. And, you know, it's a joke that I've had for a while. And I am just trying to live up to this, to this idea that I have. But I was not prepared for the amount of men that would not be happy about it. And they were very happy to tell me that on Twitter. And I do not care. (laughs) It's one of your many charms. Thank you. I think that was a very elegant explanation, by the way, for something we can't say on air. The time. I mean, yes. Yeah, you know, you have to keep your licensing. You don't need any uh, issues with the, uh, the FCC, they don't play. I appreciate your understanding. You mentioned your mom's helping with masks and T-shirts. She still lives in Atlanta? Yes, my mother's still in Atlanta. And so when the um, pandemic started, she started making masks because she's always like made clothes and, you know, been a very crafty person. And she's always had businesses where she made things. So when the pandemic started, she started making masks. She made masks for one of the uh, comedy clubs up here in New York called The Stand. So she's been really good about, you know, she's so she just started a business and, you know, because people, once we started wearing like the cloth masks, people wanted to get them customized. And so that's what she started doing. One of my friends who is an artist in New York, Pearl Metten, she designed a logo for me for the shirts and I sent them over to my mom. So She's going to be making masks for me. So I'm really excited to see how everyone come out because I did an in Friends show because this is my first show back in Atlanta. Like I haven't done, you know, a big show in Atlanta since, you know, I started doing stand up full time. So I wanted to make sure that I had like, you know, comics who had supported me. So Lace Larrabee is going to be there. Rob Hayes and Shalewa Sharp are going to be on the show. So these are all comics that I started with in Atlanta and I might have some special guests come on. So we're just hoping that the show is great. Well, the name of it is Dulce Sloan and Friends. So you are being loyal to your friends. You have not left them behind since you've moved to New York. I love how you say you were forced to move to New York because of success. Yes. Do you really dislike the city as much as you joke about on stage oh yeah it's horrible it should be burned down immediately um (laughs) i wake up every day that there's a dragon egg in my bed so i can burn it down but yeah it's interesting because i one it's like if someone says that they don't like atlanta like i don't care and if when i lived in la people like oh i don't like la and people from la don't care but it seems like if you say that you don't like New York, especially to a New Yorker, you know, they seem to take it as a personal attack. And it, and I've realized over the years, like, oh, people make being from New York or living in New York part of their like identity and personality. So when you say you don't like the city, they take it as a personal attack. You know, I was born in Miami and lived there, but most of my life I spent in Georgia and I spent in Atlanta. And I'm very much a Georgian and very much an Atlanta, you know, native according to the Atlanta rules because I graduated from high school there. But 
if someone says they don't like Atlanta, I'm like, okay, then move. Like, I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to go toe to toe for you. Like people, like after my special came out, people were emailing me, like, how dare you? And I'm like, you don't even own anything. What are you talking about? Well, you live in an apartment. Calm down. Oh, I'm so glad to be back in the South where people are real. Oh, and the men are beautiful. Because yes. I was forced to move to New York because of success. And I hate that place. I hate that place. I hate that place. I hate it. I hate it, okay? You're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to say you hate New York. Because people will go, what do you mean you hate New York? It's the greatest city on earth. What? And they always do it the same way. They always look slightly off to the side like a cult member. It's the greatest city on earth. What? Where'd you go? I'm right here. What happened? Is de Blasio paying you? What's going on? I hate that place. It's a Yankee trash heap. I hate it. When we last talked, you confirmed that Trevor Noah is as kind and generous as he seems, not to mention an amazing intellect. Dulce, how has your career unfolded since joining The Daily Show? Oh, since joining the show, I've gotten so many great opportunities. You know, I was able to do a movie called Chick Fight that came out at the end of um, 2020. Yeah. And so I was able to do that. I've been able to, you know, and doing Great North on Fox. So I've gotten a lot of opportunities from being on the show. And Trevor has been so supportive. And, you know, Trevor and the staff at the show have been supportive in letting, you know, me do other projects. And, you know, I got to do, you know, the show 25 Words or Less, and I've done, you know, the show Adorableness on MTV. So it's been really great in allowing me to have opportunities while still being able to be part of the show. How much freedom do you have to write or create your own segments on this show? I'm thinking about Dulce as one. Well, that came about um, one of the EPs at the show pitched that to me and as an idea. And so me and the other producers at the show, you know, they'll come up with ideas or I'll come up with an idea. And so they came to me with that. But the one that I really created was one called Count On It because I wanted to do a piece about the census and how important it was for, to do the census, especially for black people and other people of color to find out, you know, how the census works and why it's important to do it. Because, you know, no one ever really explains what the census is for. They just mail something to your house. I'm like, all right, write down your name and everybody who lives here and then send it back to us. And everyone's like, I'm not telling you who lives here. What are you talking about? I'm not doing that. <laughs> but, you know, educating people and saying, you know, that there's literally a law that the Census Bureau can't share any information on the census with other government agencies in reference to you know, who's in the home, because you know you have to write people's names down. So say someone has like a warrant or something like that, and they're in your house, the Census Bureau can't send all this information to law enforcement and go, oh, well, this person you're looking for lives in this house because it was on the census. Like, they can't do that. 
Also, if someone is not a citizen of the United States, they can't send that information over to immigration and go, oh, these are the people that live here, you know, go round them up. They're not allowed to do that. So talking about, you know, the importance of having that population be accurate and knowing who's living where and finding out that, like, if you don't fill out the census, they'll just assume who lives in your house. So I live in a predominantly white neighborhood in New York. And so if I didn't fill out the census, then they would put down that I was a white man. But inversely, say I was a white person living in a predominantly black area. If I didn't fill out the census, they would say that I was black because they just put down whatever the predominant population is in an area. That's what they assume you are if you live there. They should call it a makes no census. It makes no census. Exactly. <laughs> so it's just, it's guessing is basically what it is. Like, oh, if you're in a black area, you're a black person. If you're in a white area, you're a white person. Why would someone who's not of this background be living in this area? So, of course, that's what they are because you live in this house. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the popular comedian Dulce Sloan, who grew up here in Atlanta, in addition to being a correspondent on The Daily Show. Dulce is the voice of Honeybee on Fox's animated TV hit The Great North. She'll be in town performing stand-up at City Winery this weekend. You have the opportunity and the talent to address serious subjects within the comedy format. And one that I especially enjoyed was a segment you did on the Waco police and policing in America. Would you talk about that well, policing in America, when you're finding out like how these bonds work and how basically it's a system that kind of like, it's almost a system that like consumes itself. It's like it's trying to help, but it's not helping at the same time. And when you find out just how all of the things that like the power that police unions have and everything, it's very, as a citizen, confusing and sometimes, you know, disheartening to know that this is how policing works and just trying to see the different places have tried to change that and the pushback that they've gotten because no one's saying we don't need police no one's saying that we're just saying that we need to fix the system and just the amount of pushback on that is sometimes confusing to me because it's like oh we can say that something doesn't work without saying that you know the people that are involved in it are completely unscrupulous but when you're seeing what they're doing you're like oh this doesn't seem to be about helping people this seems to be more about property protection and that's very upsetting and so just trying to figure out the best ways to make sure that people are actually receiving help from the police as opposed to being victimized by the police I think it's something that, you know, no one we're trying to have a conversation about and it's becoming 
you know, good eggs versus bad eggs. And it's like, well, that's not really what the point is. It's yes, there are good eggs and there are bad eggs, but the bad eggs are making all of the noise. And we need to all agree that this is a system that needs to be corrected, not completely, because you can't abolish it and start over, but making sure that they're doing what we want them to be. Because there's no reason that my entire life I have been afraid of the police. Like these are the people that are supposed to be helping us. But because of the system and the training that's in place now, and you know, when you come, like places like New York, they have something called stop and frisk. And then they said, we got rid of it, but your, your, the name changed, but the policy still stayed enacted. It's like, well, how is just stopping a random person on the street with no probable cause, even a good use of police time? Because think about the number of people they stopped that weren't doing anything wrong when they could have been actually doing something. So I think that's the thing where just like, we all have to agree, like this is something that has to be adjusted and corrected from the inside. So everybody is safer, like people and police officers, we can just figure out a way for everyone to be safer and for everyone who's black and brown to not be frightened every time a cop walks up. Like, what are y'all doing? Like, nothing. Why are you here? Who needs you? Ah. Mm. So the Waco police in your segment decided that they needed appreciation and they were passing out the equivalent of baseball cards about stupid (laughs) stupid it's completely stupid like well i don't need i don't need it just was like what so i can i didn't like okay so good the only thing good about that is like now if one of them does something i have his badge number like i don't i don't need trading cards for the police like that was money that was wasted that's what you went to a print shop y'all had a photo shoot like all of these things didn't need to happen what needed to happen was as opposed to being like hey we're the good guys here's a trading card being like no why did you have to do that in the first place waco police taking steps to engage more with young people in our community officers are giving out trading cards you see them there and when they see kiddos on the streets they hand them one if you're wondering each card has a picture of the officer along with some of their background career information it gives the youth the opportunity to to learn a little bit about each officer so you know it it shows that police officers are people too oh this is great the waco police are gonna pass out pokemon cards of themselves so now when a cop throws me against the wall, I can be like, oh, wow, I can't believe I'm being manhandled by Officer Barry. <laughs> Man, you a collectible. <laughs> now, look, I think this is a great idea, but it would be even better if the cops got trading cards of black people instead. Then they can see us as human beings. That theme carries into what you suggest about a special phone for white people and the 911 number, would you talk about that? You know, it's a known fact that if you are not a black person and you want to strike fear into the heart of black people because you want to control them in some type of way, all you have to do is call the police. Everyone knows that. And so there are a lot of times where police are just sent places because somebody just didn't like the fact that a black person was just in a general place. So having, you know, the whole point of the piece was having someone to field those calls and be like, no, we're not doing this. It's like, oh, there's black people talking loud on the train. Okay, cool. 
throw yourself off the train. Like this is <laughs> you're going to put people's lives in danger because you feel like that since you've seen a black person that there is an implied threat when really black people ain't even think about you. Well, for years, 911's been handling calls that turns out aren't actual emergencies. Hello, 911. There are black people. Ma'am, stay calm. I'm scared too. The officers are on their way. So we came up with a program to help white people decide if their emergency was an actual emergency. We hired a black operator. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, I'm on the train and these black people are talking and it's loud and I think there could be a fight. Okay, sir, so let me get this straight. You called 911 because black people were talking loud? Uh, yeah, I, I guess. Okay, good. Here's what I need you to do. Stand up, walk to the window, and throw your ass off that train. No, he's just walking down the sidewalk, but it feels threatening. Girl, bye. Is she a bit unorthodox? Yes. But it's been efficient and she's almost entirely professional. Almost. So you're saying he's a 6'4", African-American male, broad shoulders, driving a Benz. I need you to look closely at him. Is he wearing a wedding ring? Uh, no. Stay right there, I'm on my way. It's you're putting people's lives in danger because you want to be a jerk. And so that's the whole point of that piece was basically like, mind your business. If nothing's happening, get off the phone. You're wasting police time. You're putting someone's life in danger. Go do something. They'll say one of my favorite segments that you did is one in which you appear as God. Yes. <laughs> Originally when we had it, like I had that long gray beard and I actually had like a matching wig that matched the beard. And Trevor saw me and he was like, no, I want to see her Afro. Yeah. Because it was talking about like how Bill O'Reilly was like, oh, why did God let this happen to me? I'm like, Bill O'Reilly, God didn't do this. This was definitely the devil. That's your homeboy. So it was just me saying like, Bill O'Reilly, keep my name out your mouth. Like, this is not my fault. You were on TV acting reckless. Don't blame this on God. This is all you. But it was a very interesting segment because I was sitting there and I was like, is this blasphemous? Am I okay? Am I going to get hit by lightning <laughs> while we're shooting this? Well, your first line is, what up, heathens? I yep. That, that's one for the ages. What Up Heathens wasn't originally in the script. I just got out there and I was like, what would God say if God was on TV? <laughs> and looked like you. And looked like me. What would God say? What Up Heathens, which is something that I say to my friends when I see them sometimes anyway, because, you know, they're heathens. You mentioned your mom and how supportive she is of your career. Was she supportive of your interest in theater as a kid growing up here? Absolutely. She was very supportive. She, she's made me costumes. She's gotten me props. I told her when I was six years old that I wanted to be an actor. And she was like, okay, well, what are you going to do to achieve that? You know, she was in plays and she danced and she was a majorette when she was a kid. And then my uncle, Stevie B, and his, you know, a music artist who's been performing my entire life. So, you know, with her having a performance background and my uncle being, you know, a working performer, I don't know, almost 40 years, you know, there was an example in my family that you can be successful as a performer and as an artist. So she was always very supportive of me doing theater. I did summer stock one time and I had to go up to like between my junior and senior year of college, I had to go up to Quakertown, Pennsylvania for three months to do summer stock. 
and she, and it's like a 13 hour drive and me, her and my brother drove my car up to Pennsylvania and then they flew back to Atlanta. You know, she's how I got into stand up. She's the one that convinced me to take, you know, big Kenny Johnson stand up class. And, you know, she's come to see me at shows. So she's been very supportive in me being an actor and being a comedian. Wonderful. Now, before moving to New York City, you performed at venues here such as Laughing Skull, The Funny Farm, and Aurora Theater. How do you feel returning to your hometown and performing at City Winery? I'm very excited. I wanted to perform back in Atlanta for a while. I was like, well, I want to find like a, you know, a nice big venue for everybody to come out to. And I've done shows with City Winery in New York before. You branched out during the pandemic. In April of 2020, you launched a podcast, That Black Ass Show. What can you tell us about it? Starburns, which is a podcast network, came to me and a young lady there, Judith Carbo, was like, well, I have this idea for a show where, you know, we talked about black movies and TV shows. I was like, great, let's do it. And the thing about being in lockdown, like I was recording like two, three episodes a week and I was able to interview all kinds of people because everyone was like, well, I'm home. I wanted to talk to people about the shows and movies that were impactful to them and what they really liked and cared about. And there were some things that I had watched that I had never seen before, or, you know, like uh, Cornbread and Earl that Marina Franklin, you know, wanted to talk about on the show. But then also watching, you know, I hadn't seen Tales from the Hood in a long time. And Yasa Lesser wanted to talk about that. You know, and Yvonne Orji came on and, you know, she was talking about her, you know, special that was coming out. And then Shalewa came on. Shalewa Sharp and I had Hannibal Burris, Naomi Ekparrigan, David Borey came on. So it was great to talk to other Black performers about the movies and TV shows that impacted them and seeing that representation was very important and just really noticing and learning more about what exactly other people were watching growing up and if we were watching the same thing. Comedian, correspondent for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and voice actor Dulce Sloan. You can see her on stage at City Winery this Saturday, February 19th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, physics meets stage performance in Theatrical Outfits' production of Bright Half-Life, amplifying Atlanta... This is W-A-B-E. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. What if life itself had a rewind button? Wouldn't it be great to undo some mistakes in our lives or relive certain moments? In Theatrical Outfit's production of the play Bright Half-Life, audiences experience the rewind and fast-forward of the 40-year relationship between Erica and Vicky. Director Melissa Fulcher joins us via Zoom with the actor Park Crossan, who plays the role of Erica. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise. Thanks, Lois. Pleasure. What different stages of Erica and Vicky's life together do we see throughout the play? We see their relationship from the moment they first meet when Erica introduces herself on the job, all the way through the final moments of their lives together as they're planning for the end of their life, the, the what happens as we get older, the sickness, the illness, and how they continue to be a part of each other's life throughout many different phases. And even if they're not together that whole time, they are still bonded in that way. And that's what's beautiful about the piece for me. Mm-hmm. Why did the playwright, Tanya Barfield, want to tell this story in a nonlinear way? I think it's because life is really based on memory, right? We remember all of these things from our past. They don't necessarily come to us in order. We remember these really great moments. We remember these really horrible moments but they bounce back and forth. And over the course of time, we revisit things about ourselves and our lives and our relationships. And so by putting it out of order, we see where there are connections and how we got to different places in our life and the decisions that we made that led us into different directions. And so I think that nonlinear structure allows us to look at and remember what life is like and how we experience time. Mm And what's it like to direct a play that switches from the past to the future, to the present, to the past and future again? It's exhausting. It's um, (laughs) (laughs) So I, I think Park can talk about this too a little bit, is we spend a lot of time sitting with the script and working on trying to find the chronological line of the play so that then we understood what the arc of their relationship was so that then it could be broken back up. But each part has its own level of depth and foundation based on knowing where it happens in the course of their relationship. Mark, what can you tell us about your character, Erica? Oh, well, I was going to actually say something really quickly about time, Lois, if I might. Oh, please. I imagine that 
has its challenges for the actors as well. Yeah, and about Erica, I would say, you know, I often ask myself this question, other people a question like, how do you see time? How do you remember the past? And for me, as is true for the context of this play, the world of this play, it's almost like these living snapshot moments that reanimate and every time you see them, because we revisit some of these scenes again and again, there are these slight shifts. So how fallible or reliable is our own memory? And it's really juicy as an actor to be inside of that. And I can't know that as an actor, that I'm playing different versions, I mean, as a character, but to actually feel what that does to you as a character, as the actor, when you constantly go back and forth. And to answer your other question about what's it like to be inside, it is, I feel like it's mental gymnastics and it's hard to keep track of sometimes. Which version of an argument have you already had? Which moment from your first date are you reliving again? How many times do you ask someone to go out and is it always the same? So my character is a bit of the pursuer at the beginning and maybe loses steam or realizes that she needs to pursue herself and own agenda that she may have put to the side in order to show up for the person that she loves. So that's a one aspect of my character. My character is definitely a big dreamer and someone who connects with a larger tapestry of the universe. She's probably a better writer than she is a speaker. So she gets caught up in these really wonderful speeches, trying to play all sides of an argument, trying to make all different points about her agenda on love or the universe, or even trying to propose in a very colorful way to her beloved. And she's faltering all over the place. But if you were to write it down and piece it back together, she really has some beautiful things to say. Mark, this was the first time you shared this stage with the actor Candy McClellan. Yeah. How do you work to create what feels like an authentic four-decade-long relationship? I think it's because it might not be four decades long, but the relationship is authentic. We got lucky thanks to Melissa, who found us and brought us together in the same room. Uh, Zoom room this was, and I think had a hunch, Melissa, you can probably speak to this better than I can, that the two of us might have a lot of fun and dynamism playing off of one another. And that was true from moment one. Secretly, I found out who Candy was, or not so secretly, because her name was on the invitation. And I contacted her and I was like, we're having a callback together. I've never met you. Can we chat? Can we talk about these characters? And so it was really from the moment we started the callback that we just have this kind of kindred connection and we love playing off of each other. It's a gift to work with her. So I think that diving into this play and this 40-year relationship has been about the two of us as actors navigating this wonderful script that we get to live in. Melissa, can you tell us the meaning behind the title of the show? Absolutely. So Tanya Barfield structured the play around the concept of the half-life of an atom. And the atom 
over time pulls in on itself. And as it does, and sort of as stars do, when they start starting to die, they, they pull in closer together and they become brighter and brighter. And so these moments are those really bright crystalline moments from this relationship. And then they break apart and scatter around the universe. And just like that, we've, we've seen sort of this breaking apart in the, the relationship and in the time. So she really went back to the, the concepts behind the science of, of atoms in order to use that as the basis of, of the timeline in the play. My goodness, I would not have thought physics would factor <laughs> into this, but apparently so. It sure does. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with director Melissa Folter and actor Park Krausen about theatrical outfits' new production of Bright Half-Life. Melissa, or Park, if, if you know anything about Tanya Barfield's biography. Does this play relate to her own life in any way? In conversation, we actually did talk about this during our study of the play phase. And we found that, yes, there is an autobiographical or semi-autobiographical nature to the piece, that there are parts of her relationships that appear in this. And so she wanted to celebrate her relationship and how she experiences love and, and put that into the production. Two lesbian main characters in a love drama is surprisingly rare in theater today. Other than the challenges Erica and Vicky face as a married couple, what other issues do they address in this play? I have a couple things to say about that. It's a play, to your point, about 40 years of a relationship and whether we have experienced one year, four years, 10 years, 12 years, 20 years, or 40 years of a relationship. I think something shifts when you have time and history and wounds and celebrations with people. So it's really how do we honor the text and live the highs and lows of a 40-year relationship as two human beings who have chosen and said yes to being in a couple together. And I think there are challenges inherent within that. And audience response has been quite wonderful around, oh my gosh, this is my life. You know, I've been in a 20-year, 40-year relationship. You can key in and laugh at yourself and also weep at some of your kind of losses and missteps within the context of the relationship. And we're two younger, shall I say, actors who are investigating aging and what that means together within the context. There's more than 10 years difference between Candy and myself, and I, I don't think I'm revealing too much, though you might not see it. And so it's interesting to come to it from two different perspectives. Now, as far as like sexuality and relationship, I think this couple is really interesting. And it's so, in its specificity, it becomes so universal. So let me talk about two things. A woman who was a 
fairly conservative, heterosexual woman came up to us after the show and she said, listen, this story is two women on stage, but this story is everybody's story, everyone who's lived in a couple. And she said, I wish more people could see this because it just shows us really how much love is love. And that's it, period. History is history. Relationships are relationships. Whatever the couple is in gender, presentation, sexuality, whatever. So that was really moving. And I think there's a specificity in this story. One character is very much living as a gay person in the world, participates in the AIDS awareness rallies of the moment in the 80s and 90s, basically trying to bring medical attention and pressure on the government to do more to step up in the crisis. So very politically active. That's my character, Erica. And Vicky has never been in a homosexual relationship before. So there's a specific unfolding for her character that she knows she's in love with Erica. But what does it mean? to have to deal with your family, to come out, to delay fully embracing your own identity, even while living inside of it. So I think it, it it's a complicated story, but it, it gives us access to a number of different versions of what it might look like to live in a, you know, homosexual relationship and where you are in your own personal journey. Along those lines, they are dealing with the time pre- gay marriage. Mm-hmm. And so the the concept of marriage has a very different impact for them because it is a commitment. It's not legal that gets used as an argument that, but it, it's something that they feel is important to balance and strengthen their relationship outside of the fact that it's not legal to do. They also have children and, you know, the concepts around having children are something that I think people don't really think about in gay relationships, although it is really common and uh, is something that connects it back and makes it a universal story as well. Melissa, I'm thinking about your description of the play and Tanya Barfield's concept of the atom. And wondering about the set design, what can you tell us? Well, when we were working on the set, I went back and I looked at a lot of physics and a lot of things in nature. (laughs) Um, And what I found is, you know, there's this idea with time even of cycles, things that, that come round again. And so the idea of it feeling universal, but also something that is constantly rotating felt really important to me. So the set is round. I mean, it's round, but it has different platforms at different levels. But the idea is that you can constantly be rotating the actors around the stage. They're getting pulled in closer together in moments where they are truly close and connected. And the moments where they break apart, there's the ability for them to have some real separation from each other on the set as well. But they're, they're constantly moving like electrons and protons and neutrons around the set. And so that was really important. We also chose colors that were really neutral, but had the idea of a galaxy or or an atom. So it feels 
it doesn't give us any idea of place because we're in so many different places through the course of the play. And so it allows us to look at the two actors and make the actors important, but it provides a really strong foundation for them to work in. Director Melissa Folger and actor Park Krausen, who portrays Erica in Bright Half-Life, on stage now through February 27th at Theatrical Outfit. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Kay Michelle Dubois, and I create rock and roll, alternative, I guess leaning towards experimental pop. Some of it is kind of poppy. I play keyboards and guitar, and I also sing. I come from a family of songwriters and musicians, so we always had a home studio with lots of instruments to play around on. I first started playing around on keyboards, started playing violin in the fourth grade and then moved to piano lessons and just music was always part of my life. My song, The Fever Returns, is the title track off of my most recent album. It coincidentally came out during the pandemic, but when I wrote it, I actually really was sick and I, I had strep throat and I had a fever that came back a couple of times. And that phrase came into my head and I really liked it. And so I started strumming and just kind of using that phrase. This song now really means whenever you get that fever, it's a fever for living, a fever for exploring. You should take it and you should leave the nest and follow that fever and, and the zest for life, basically. My song, Becoming Real, I wrote that when I was in the middle of binging Westworld. If you are familiar with Westworld, it's the plight of some AI 
like character robots in this in this large realistic game that people who are loaded can go in and play out their fantasies. <laughs> but the AI characters start to retain memories and they start to realize that their reality is not real. And then it creates this kind of panic within them and their desire to be real. I also watched the movie Ex Machina, same thing. When the AI character kind of breaks free and suddenly she's on her way to quote, become real, unquote, you know, she's suddenly, she's got this freedom, but there was like a really heavy melancholy vibe with that because of how ugly our world can be. So it just begged a lot of questions and when I wrote that song, it sounds like an empowerment song. Like, I'm not going to follow your rules anymore. I'm going to go, you know, become real and be myself. But there's also a very moody underlying vibe to that. At least there was when I wrote it. I really enjoy seeing live music at the Variety Playhouse in Little Five Points and their fairly recent renovation is really great. So I've only been there once because of the pandemic. Smaller clubs, I like the Earl at East Atlanta Village, I've enjoyed many a show there including playing there. I have resumed my podcast i do a podcast called zen noodle pie and i started it in 2016. i did it really to share and to kind of help me manage my own anxiety that i deal with on a daily basis and it was a way for me to have a controlled project where the completion of it was entirely up to me and i could release it on my own and i wasn't you know, beholden to other people's, you know, and so I have to wait in this anticipation. I can just let it out there and release it. And that's really helpful for me in managing my anxiety. So check it out. multi-talented musician K-Michelle Dubois. You can learn more about Dubois on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Finally, news of a free concert that promises some beautiful listening. The Emory Chamber Music Society has a noon concert tomorrow at First Presbyterian Church in Midtown. Grammy Award-winning cellist Zul Bailey will perform music including two of Bach's solo suites for cello. No tickets or registration are needed, 
but masks are required for the free in-person performance. If you prefer, you can enjoy the concert from home by going to firstpressatl.org. And the concert will be available for later streaming in case you can't watch it live. Once again, the concert is free of charge, and there's free parking across the street from the church on Peachtree. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Atlanta playwright and critic Calandra Smith tells us about her new play, Younger, which will be part of True Colors Theatre Company's upcoming series, The Reality of Realty. Plus, the story behind Actors Express's podcast, Tucker's Cove. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE at last. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.